I said to Heather a few minutes ago, uh, I so enjoy sitting up here and watching, watching the kids just squirm. And, and June this morning was very active. Here they were, and Dad was pointing, and she would look at him and say, yeah. <laughs> and I, I would, part through one of the songs we were singing, I was laughing. She said, what are you laughing at? I said, I'm just watching June, I'm enjoying this. And she said, you're enjoying that because that's not your child. And I said, yes, does that make me a bad person? Uh, when our kids were really young, uh, we, when we were attending church in London, uh, that was Leah. I mean, um, could not control that child. And if we sat at the front and, and the, the worship they did there was pretty loud and pretty active, and uh, her and a few other kids, friends of our family, they were all over the place. And in a few weeks in, I just gave up. I just, you know, I couldn't control, so I just pretended she wasn't mine. And uh, <laughs> love seeing it, love seeing it. Uh, let's spend a couple minutes together in, in prayer this morning. Father, what a privilege it is for us to have the freedom uh, to gather here this morning. Uh, we prayed before the service came out, praying with the worship team. We recognize certainly there are Sundays some of us wake up and think, oh, I don't know if I feel like going to church today. And yet, we know, we know this much, when we just stop and think about it, what a great privilege it is for us to gather together with other believers and with other people who are here to, to interact with the, the gospel story of Jesus Christ who, who may not yet consider themselves believers. But as we gather together, Father, we do so with the greatest confidence that you brought us here, that you're about something, that this isn't uh, just because it's, it's a date on the calendar, it's a day of the week. We come here under your banner, under your guidance and the presence of your spirit, and that your word tells us where only a few would get together. You would promise the residence of your spirit with us, and, and that makes every one of our gatherings, whether or not it's here, whether or not it's on Sunday, but every one of our gatherings, when we come together, uh, the opportunity for a divine experience. If we just catch a, a glimpse of the nature of God when we come together, uh, we expect that that will be more than we anticipated might happen. And so, Father, we just uh, we thank you for this time that we have, and we anticipate as we spend this time together, and especially as we open your word, uh, it will not be for naught, it will not be just out of habit with no result, that in fact you will speak uh, to us about us and about yourself, and we just thank you for that. Remind us how, how a great privilege this is, and uh, draw us to yourself. Be mindful this morning of people who we would say belong to us, are part of us, but may not be in the room this morning for whatever reason that may be, and we seek your blessing and ask your blessing on them where they're at as well. Those who are struggling in health, those who are just located somewhere else right now for whatever reason, uh, Father, we lift up those names and faces that we know. They are part of us as a body, part of us as a family, and we uh, ask your blessing on them and make us mindful that as one body, we are responsible to care for one another as well, and we just thank you. Uh, for that burden and that privilege. It's both at the same. So, Father, we ask your blessing as we spend the remainder of this morning together and uh, just seek your voice to, uh, to speak to us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good, good morning, everybody. You, uh, you got decent weather outside. You had options. You did not have to be here, despite what maybe you were instructed. Uh, you didn't have to be here, so it's good to see you here this morning. Very happy to see us all here. This morning. Here, here's a question we're going to be asking in the next few weeks. Um, typically, what I would say, if, if you were part of our uh, 
I think two or three years ago, we did something called a core values study where we asked the question, what are the things that really matter to us in this church, right? The core values of this church gathering may not be exactly the same as the values of the church down the road. And one of the values we talked about in, in the sphere of preaching and teaching is that our preaching and teaching is always going to be Bible. It's not just good ideas for living. It's Bible-based preaching. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of liberty with that over the next few weeks to say uh, what we're going to be doing in the next few weeks is not so much preaching the Bible, but about the Bible. That is to say, where, where did you get it? And some of you, are, I know what you think, you're smart. You say, I got it online. I bought mine online. I bought it at the store. That's not the question we're asking. I don't really care where you got your paper copy or your digital copy. The question we're asking is, where did it come from? Right? Easter is not too many weeks behind us. Uh, we celebrated, I think, the story, uh, the, the historical story that is as important as Christmas. Christmas is the entering of God into our sphere, into our reality. Easter is the story of His death and resurrection. And so a few weeks ago, we celebrated that once again. It was the time of year to do so. And sometimes I think the church makes this huge leap in between. We say, well, there's that story, and boom, here we are today. And we have this wonderful script in our hand. And so a few weeks ago, I started asking the question, how did we get it? Where did it come from? And I got thinking about the process of canon. How is it that the early church took the writings and the stories of Jesus and decided what to include in a combined one piece that said, this is the scriptures for the church. And in a couple of weeks, we'll look at how complex that process was. That Many books that you see in your Bible were at one point out. They were not included in the list. And then at the next generation, they were included in the list. And when did the church decide, well, that's it, that's the list, and, and that's anything from here is out and anything else is in? And last week, I introduced the idea that if you look at the letters to Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about a previous letter. So we have a book in our Bible called 1 Corinthians, but Paul actually says there was a letter before that. And the scholars, the academics look at it and say, you know, if you read critically through 1 and 2 Corinthians, you can see uh, inference to almost four different letters that Paul wrote. So how did the church decide that we only kept 1 and 2 Corinthians, which is at least 2 and 3 Corinthians? And so I started thinking about where we got our Bibles from. And to do that, honestly, we got to go back a little further. Now, how many of you uh, throughout school or high school had a just terribly boring history teacher? that you can remember. think back, you had a history teacher, and you just could barely get through the class because the history teacher was so boring. No, hold on a sec. Look around, make sure that teacher's not here, but... <laughs> well, yeah, I, had a, I had a teacher, he, he taught, if I remember correctly, both history and geography, but he had this thing that just drove us nuts. We used to have the, the pull-down screens that they have. Remember the, in your high school room, they had the pull-down screens? And, and there was always a string with something tied onto it. And he used to stand right underneath that string, and it would dangle on his head. And he would just, he would stand there and talk like this, and that was the entire class, monotone voice, swaying back and forth with the string dangling on his head. And I'm sitting there going, would you just move one way or the other to get that thing off your head? That's the only thing I remember about that class. And the fact that I think I got a 52, like I barely passed it, right? Uh, this morning specifically, we're going to look at a little bit of history, and I'm going to try not to be that guy, Okay. But if we're going to ask this question, um, we've got to start fairly early. Where do we get our, our Bibles from? Last week we looked at this word. Go ahead and throw it up on screen. Paul says in his letter to Timothy that the Word of God, the Scriptures, are uh, theanustos, which means it's the breath of God. 
So sometime in the first century, between 100 AD, uh, up to 100 AD, pretty much all of our New Testament is written in that time frame, from the time of Christ to 100 AD. And somewhere in that stretch, probably around 70 AD, Paul writes this letter to Timothy. And in referencing the old, what we call the Old Testament, he says, all scriptures are the breath of God. And we introduce that word because what, what I want to make sure we know is, this is not how you got your Bible, that God just went, and it showed up somewhere. It's not what he meant by theonostos. Uh, the word that is, is used in Genesis that talks about the writing of the tablets. And here's a thought for you to take home, and I'm not going to answer this. I just want to park this in your mind for you to have something to play with. It says in Genesis that God said to Moses, go and carve out two tablets so that I can write my law on them. And I don't know if you've got a picture in your mind from the, some, some of the movies that have been written, but sometimes you'll see these pictures of these two stone tablets. They always have a curved top. I don't know why they have a curved top, these tablets. And they've got ten codes on them, ten, ten laws. Why ten? Ten commandments. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the entire law was written on them, front and back. And the best that you can get to get a sense of what is the entire law is, that's the book of Leviticus. So imagine your book of Leviticus, I don't know how many pages it represents in your Bible, but the entire law was scripted on these tablets, written front and back. Now here's what's intriguing to me. God says to Moses, go and carve out this stone so that I can write my code on them. And immediately, and this is, I'm sorry, this is just the way my brain thinks, I'm thinking God couldn't carve out his own stone? Like, why did he need Moses to carve out the stone if he was the one that was going to write on it? Surely God could carve out the stone. In fact, I'm pretty sure in the, the who played Moses in the movie, the Ten Commandments? Heston. I'm pretty sure in the Heston movie, it's a bolt of lightning that actually takes the stone off the mountainside. So, sorry, they got it wrong. Actually, Moses, God asked Moses to go carve the stone, and God wrote on them. And so, when I think of Scripture being theonostos, the breath of God, and then I realize that God asked Moses to participate in the creation of the tablets, the first question in my mind is why? Why did God need him? God didn't need him to do it, but God asked him to do it. And I see that there was a God-man cooperative work in the very first scripting of God's word. So theanostos does not just mean that God just went, and there it was. It means that there's some type of cooperative effort between God and man in the doing of it. Uh, the word that's used to talk about the writing of God on the tablets is not the anastas, it's poema, which means the work of God, which means literally that the writer says that the first script that was written down for the people of God to understand was the handiwork, the workmanship of God, and the, the, the straight-up equivalent that we have of that in the New Testament is what Heather referred to, Ephesians 2.10, that says, you are God's workmanship. So the same words, the same essence of the words are used to talk about God's writing of his script and God's creation of his people. There's something for us to be found in that. Where did my Bible come from? This is a knowledge-based series. It's going to help us understand the background of my Bible. And I want for you to second quickly to turn to today's scripture reading in Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to read through a section of it again just to get us a sense of what we're going to take a look at here. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy is uh, one of the books of the Pentateuch. It's written by Moses, and Deuteronomy is written right at the end of Moses' life. He has led the people of Israel. They're about to enter the Promised Land, which he knows he's not going with them. And so he writes Deuteronomy to basically say, okay, hold on, before you all go in, let's recount how we got here. 
And so Deuteronomy is the story of how God brought them to the edge of the promised land. And in writing this, he says this. Chapter 32, I'm going to pick it up at verse 7. He says, listen, remember the days of old and consider generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according, according to the number of the sons. For the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is his allotted inheritance. Remember the days of old and what God has done. And we're going to take a peek at that this morning in building this timeline. What we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're actually literally going to build this timeline right around this room. We get a sense of, uh, hopefully we can come to this idea of this is where my Bible came from. Um, I'm going to use the word prehistoric to talk about anything before 4000 BC. And if you're a, a student of archaeological sciences, if you're someone who, who digs into that kind of stuff, you're going to say, well, that's not the right use of the word prehistoric. Prehistoric means something other than that. We're going to use the word to basically say, previous to 4000 BC, anything we know of human history is from artifact, is from findings, is from discernment. It's not from written record. And there's a reason for that. Uh, because Written record, writing, scripting by humans doesn't start till somewhere in between four and 3,000 B.C. Depending on who you ask, 35, 3,200, somewhere in there we have pre-Semitic script, i.e. little etchings, little carvings, little things that will eventually become language. So anything that we know of human history previous to 4,000 B.C. is from archaeological digs and from those type of things. Now, this series isn't going to be about aging the earth. There, if you wanted to go back previous to 4,000 B.C. and say, well, how much is there previous to 4,000 B.C.? If you're a, a uh, very conservative, um, very straightforward reading uh, scriptures, you say, well, it's, it's pretty just close. I can go to certain chapters in the Bible and I can count back generations and see how long somebody lived and, and I can name all these things right back to Adam. Then you're likely going to say 4,000 goes back to maybe 6,000 B.C., uh, if you have to give yourself a little, we maybe 8,000 B.C. Can't be anything more than that. And so for, for some of us in the church, we say there is, there is no history because the creation of the world would be about 8,000, push me hard, maybe 10,000 B.C. Can't be done. No, there's scholars who talk about dates of 15, 20, 30,000 B.C. And of course, there's all kinds of archaeological science that says millions and billions. That's a discussion we're not having today. That's not what this is about. We're starting our timeline basically around 4,000 B.C., and from there forward, we start to see the development of language. Um, where did writing begin? What we do have, if you ask that question, where did, where did writing start to happen? Where did people start to document? Again, you're going to find it about 35 to 3,200 B.C., and we not only know the relative time. Now, when you're talking back this way, relative is within a few hundred years, um, I get a little bit impatient if I stop somewhere for a quick bite and i got to wait any more than a minute and a half. Uh, but we're going to talk about hundreds of years. Somewhere in that stretch we have, and we, we know the location as well. So if you take a look at the map of the Middle East, this gets you situated. You know where you're looking at in the world. There's the north tip of Africa, Saudi Arabia, Iran and Iraq, all in there. There is a part of this world called the Levant. This is a, this is a, a, an academic term, and it refers to this area right here. The Levant is basically that tiny little section of the world. It takes in Egypt, takes in the northern part of Saudi Arabia, uh, Iraq, Jordan, Syria, Israel. 
This is what uh, academic historians refer to as the Levant. And this is the section of the world where the earliest forms of human writing are found. Now, in China and in the East, there's also script being developed there. But in terms of, of language that they can look at and trace its history back to see the consistency of it, and even though it evolves over time, the Levant is the area where oldest language in the world is known to have been found. And it's dated somewhere 35 to 3200 B.C. And there's stages to how these, this language develops. Um, the earliest forms of it had nothing to do with spoken word. It had to do with accounting. And it wasn't scripted. It was tangible items. Uh, what they found are little clay tokens that are shaped differently. And one certain type of clay token would represent wheat or grain. And another shape of token would represent oil. And another shape would represent something else. And so they have found historical archaeological records these little token pieces that were used for accounting purposes. So you'd trade so much grain for so much oil or whatever. And then the second stage of that is where they take those clay tokens and the shapes and they find them actually drawn onto items. So they went from three-dimensional to two-dimensional etchings, markings. So instead of a round disc, you would draw something that looked round. And that represented that. And then the third stage of this is that they introduced... Um, phonetic sounds to them and people's names so that they would know who made the transaction and how it was done. This is all happening around 3000 BC and forward. Now, bear in mind, when you go from BC to AD in time, you switch, right? There's a, there's a zero AD, the birth of Christ around that time. And so everything before that, you're counting backwards and everything up to that, you're counting forward. So around 3000 BC up to about 1500 BC, 1500 B.C. Jot that down somewhere because we're going to come to that in a second. That's a pretty important date. Between 3000 B.C. and 1500 B.C., you have the development of language. The fourth stage of that, so you've got the symbols themselves, you've got markings that represent the symbols, then you've got sound effects that are applied to those markings. The fourth stage of that is the perfection of those sounds. Phonetic sounds and early signs of an alphabet. So a certain marking would be granted a certain sound. So right around um, 1500, approaching 1500 BC, these scripted markings are now given audible representation. And so this is what they're finding. This, this is just archaeological stuff. All of this in, in what the area called Levant is the basis for pre-Semitic languages, all the pre-Semitic languages. Pre-Semitic uh, Semitic are just, think of all the cultures represented in the Middle East. So Iranian, Syrian, uh, Jordanian, Israeli, all of those are considered Semitic cultures. And the script that we find, 35, 3200 B.C., and then perfected through up to 1500 B.C., is the basis for all Semitic languages. Genesis chapter 10, verse 21, is a list of all the families of Shem, right? Noah, son Shem, and here are... Here's the account of, you'll find this word, the account of, many times in Genesis. The account just means, here's a list of the families, the genealogies. Genesis chapter 10 is Shem. Here's the families of Shem. And the name Shem is the precursor to the word Sem, Semitic. Shem being the father of all the Semitic languages in that area. So, rough dating of what happens in that time. Well, Here's the Genesis story. We're going to do this in a huge overview. The Genesis list looks kind of like this. You've got the early chapters, which is Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve, chapters 1 and 3, Cain and Abel, chapter 4. 
you got the stories of Noah, chapters 6 to 10, Tower of Babel in 11. We have the first calling of Abraham in chapter 12, and that goes through to chapter 18, telling his story, Sodom and Gomorrah, chapter 19. Isaac is born. We find the stories of Isaac in chapter 21. And then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, there's your genealogies, uh, from chapters 25 to 35. In chapter 32, you have something really, really important that's notable for us. Jacob, in his stories, and, and the Bible follows along what happened to him, Jacob and his brother Esau, uh, here's, here's a way to keep a history class alive, you've got to ask questions. Jacob and Esau, what do you know about them? What happened to Jacob? What did he do? What, what, what happened between those two? Did they get along, Jacob and Esau? Because Jacob did what? Louder. He deceived his father and took his brother's blessing, right? And then when he realized, my brother's bigger and stronger than me, I put myself in a bad spot, runs for his life. Takes off running. Uh, you read the stories of Jacob. He's a man on the run, always trying to get the best of something, uh, always come up with some scheme, some plan to do better than what the circumstances seem to look. When he finally decides, I'm going to go home, I'm going to confront my brother, I'm going to come what happens, no matter, on his way home, Scripture tells us that he got in a wrestling match with an angel of God. Anybody happened that week? Anybody have that this week, wrestling with God? No angels? No, it hasn't happened to me either. Pretty, pretty obscure, pretty surprising story. In this wrestling match, this representative of God says to him, who are you? And he says, I'm Jacob. And they wrestle a little bit more, and the angel says, no, but who are you? And he says, I'm Jacob. And they wrestle a little bit more until the angel says, come on, man, I'm not asking for your name. Who are you? And he says, I'll tell you who you are. It's not, it's not Jacob. Your name is Israel. And the word Israel means, anybody know what it means? The one who wrestles with God. How cool is that? The man who would become the father of the nations of Israel. God says to him, your name is Israel. And the word Israel means I'm constantly at war with God. Constantly trying to work this thing out. It's a beautiful picture. You've got to check out Genesis 32 for that story. Jacob, not surprisingly, has 12 sons. Why does he have 12 sons? Because they represent what? 12 tribes. The nation is born out of this person. And one of those sons is named Joseph. And Joseph, at least, you know, if Jacob didn't get along with his brother, at least we know Joseph did, right? No, he did not. Can I just say right now, Jacob was a brat. Jacob was a loudmouth snart. I mean, look at what I got from Dad. You didn't get one of these, did you? I guess Dad likes me best. Eh. See what I got him? Thrown into a well and sold into slavery. That's, we're going to come back to that this morning too. Joseph gets himself beat up by his brothers and sold into slavery. None of which, to this point, we can put a date to. I mean, if you want to, you can sit down. I think Genesis chapter 5, there's a whole genealogy of. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, there's a genealogy of. And, and if you feel like you need to, you can sit down and start writing them down and start doing the math and work your way backwards, and you can come up with a date. And then you can go online and find out how many other people agree with you, and you will find that there are all kinds of theories on how these genealogies put together. Here's a problem. I open my Bible and I say, well, he was born of and he was the father of and he was the son of, so that should be pretty straightforward, right? Except for the fact that in ancient genealogies found all throughout the Middle East, son of doesn't always mean son of. Son of sometimes means the descendant of. 
So when I read a genealogy in my Bible and it says was born and son of, I don't know for sure if that means that's his literal next generation son. We know that's of the same family. It becomes very, very hard to put dates to some of this. So most of our story in Genesis, in fact, all the way through to the end of Genesis, we have uh, Joseph going into Egypt. All of the book of Genesis is very, very hard for us to put a date on. Uh, we kind of did to do some backwards math to get there. Uh, here's, here's what we feel fairly confident in if you look at the math backwards, is that we can put a pretty solid date on the Exodus when the people of God, the people of Israel, left Egypt from slavery. Go ahead and throw that up there. The, this, this backwards math looks like this. The Exodus was more than likely around 1446 B.C. Now, that's not even on the wall yet. That's out there a bit, right? So around 1446 B.C., about 1,500 years away from the development of language, which means the story of the Exodus isn't even written till 1,500 years after. Earlier is when it actually happened. So we find out that we have this Exodus around 1446. See, here's the way scholars date that. Uh, they say, well, we know when the temple was built, and there are certain texts that tell us uh, when this happened, the temple. Um, Kings and Chronicles and Ezekiel chapter 40 reference the building of the temple in the year of Jubilee, and you do some backwards math to get there. Genesis 15 says this, The Lord said to them, Know that certain for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. So if we know that they were in the land for 400 years, and we know that the Exodus, we're fairly confident, was around 1446, you just do the math backwards and say, now of course you're counting backwards because you're in B.C., so you actually add that number, 1846, 1876. Uh, Exodus chapter 12 actually says this. Go to the next one. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, says the Bible, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Sometimes it's hard to put dates and numbers on things, and other times Scripture is very clear. 430 years they were in that land. So if the exodus happened in 1446, 430 years means 1876 when they entered the land. So we have the story of Joseph being beaten up by his brothers, dropped into a well, sold into slavery, entering the land. Eventually famine comes. Joseph survives and thrives in the land of Egypt. He gains favor in the, in the Pharaoh's court. His family comes to him and he reveals himself to them. And his family eventually comes into Egypt. And if the ex date of the Exodus is right, then we can assume that his family came into Egypt around 1876 B.C. I can tell you're very excited by this. How long between entering the land and enslavement? Here's where the math starts to crumble a little bit for us. Uh, Genesis 46, 26. Did I grab, grab that one as well? Throw that up there. Genesis 46 says this, all of those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his sons and wives, numbered 66 people. So, story here. Joseph's mouthing off to his brothers about being the favored son. They decide to get rid of him. They sell him to slavery. He goes to Egypt. He thrives there. He becomes the Pharaoh's second person in command. There's famine in the land. His family shows up there. Joseph reveals himself and says, hey guys, it's me. Your brother that you thought you killed, look at me now. How do you like me now, right? Thought the, you thought the colored jacket was a big deal, look at me now, right? And he says, go and get the family, bring them here. 
there's, there's refuge for you here from the famine. And so they go home and they tell dad, he's alive. Turns out he wasn't eaten by a lion, which is what we've been telling you all these years. Sorry. He's alive. Let's go to Egypt. And Genesis 46 tells us that when they go to Egypt, how many of them are there? Yeah, it's pretty clear, right? 66 people. Get your family together. Grab a few vehicles. We're going to Egypt. 66 people. That's the total number of people who were there. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. At the end of Genesis, 66 people of the nation of Israel enter the land of Egypt. And Exodus chapter 1 reads this way. I'm going to jump down to verse 6. Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation had died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. How many people from the family entered the land? Sixty-six. And by the time Joseph and his descendants die, let's keep reading, verse 8, then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt, and he said, look, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Says nothing of dates, but let me ask you a question. How long does it take for 66 people to become so numerous that the nation of Egypt is intimidated by them? Hundreds of years? A thousand years? How long does it take for 66 people to become so numerous? Now, later on in the, in the story, we're going to find out they talk about hundreds of thousands, almost a quarter of a million of them at the time of the Exodus. My point is this. The time between entering the land and the time between they came, the time they came slaves, there's a big gap there that's very, very hard for us to number. Really, really hard for us to get a sense. Um, I, I lost track of how many articles I've read, how many... Uh, papers I've sifted through, how many uh, textbooks I've gone through, and, and people make these strong, strong arguments for certain dates. Well, it has to have been by this, and this has to, and I'm telling you, there's big gaps in there, very hard to know. You know, of interest, uh, archaeological scientists say the pyramids at Giza, uh, the famous pyramids of Egypt, were, were built probably 25, 2600 BC, which means that's five to seven to eight hundred years before the people of Egypt, or Israel were in that land. Again, if you watch the movie and you see, we see the people of, of Israel under slave labor. And what are they building in those pictures? Pyramids. Pyramids were done hundreds of years before they got there. Um, so we have these problems where the math starts to fall apart. Here's what we can be confident about when we start to put some of these things together is that Israel enters the land, if it's anywhere around 1800, anywhere between 1500 and 2000 BC. Give yourselves, you know, 500 years leeway either way. What else was happening at the same time that Israel enters that land? Written language was in development. I mean, historical sciences tell us 
that sometimes previous to 3000, we've we seen signs of tokens becoming script and markings becoming language, and it gets perfected, by the way, by the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the one that by 1500 have a literal alphabet with each symbol representing a sound. So somewhere between 3000 BC and 1500 BC, we have language being developed, which is exactly the same time frame that Israel enters Egypt. We can take our, our, our Bible, math, even if it has to have two or three hundred years of swing either way, and we can look at the science of archaeology and say, we find them entering this land the same time that language is starting to become script. And who is the central figure to the story of the Exodus? When we look at our Bible and we see the people of God who have been uh, entrenched in Egypt as slaves for however long it might be, whether it was 430 years in the land or 430 years of enslavement, who's the central figure in the story of the Exodus? Say it again. Moses. Moses is the character that the story is built around. Now, Moses is born, and again, I'm not going to tell you how we got there, but Moses is born somewhere between 1470 and 1520. Let's call it 1500. 1500 B.C., Moses the central character to the story that God is going to tell, is born. And he's born where? In Egypt. He's born into the world at the time when language has become perfected to written script by the Egyptians, and he's born into that culture. Tell me he's not the, the man that God designed right for that time and right in that place. You know, as much as we can look at some of the history, and the further back you go, the harder it is to date things, and yet when you see some of these things happening, Moses is born right in the time and right in the place when language is being developed. And there's a principle about this that works and, and informs us about ancient script, and it's going to work for you tomorrow, whatever you encounter. And it's found in Genesis chapter 45. So turn as we finish up and look at Genesis chapter 45. This is part of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Uh, and this part of the story is when uh, they meet him again, having no idea that he's alive, but his brothers come to Egypt looking for help, looking for refuge from the famine that is ravishing the area. He actually meets them twice, and the first time he, he meets them, he doesn't show them who he is. But in this encounter, it says this, Genesis chapter 45, I'm going to start reading at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when he had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save the lives that God sent me ahead of you. If you're going to mark your Bible, underline that. God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and no reaping. It means the famine's not going to get any better. But, verse 7, God sent me, underline that. God sent me ahead of you to preserve you from the remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me, but it was God. Where did my Bible come from, and, and, and how is it theanustos? And what in the world does that have to do with the story of Joseph? Uh, first of all, I want you to know this. Your Bible has deep, long roots into human history. It is not just appeared. What you find in your Bible 
And, and if you're a student of the Bible, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and we, and we submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God, we are part of something that has a deep, deep-rooted history. As far back, almost, as people have been recording what human beings are doing on the planet, our Bible is right there. And sometimes it's easy to reconcile it with human history, especially through the book of Kings and Chronicles. We can look at the story that the Bible tells us, and then we can go to extra sources outside the Bible and archaeology, and we go, look, there it is. The same thing that I read about is something that we found 50 years ago, right? 100 years ago, maybe. And sometimes it's not, uh, it's not easy, easily reconciled. And I'm not so sure that the church is pretty good, is good all the time with the mystery. The things that I read, the, 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 um, the academics and the scholars are working really, really hard to get the dates nailed down and make sure we all believe the certain things. Some of it's not reconcilable. Some of it doesn't work with the math that we do. The earliest forms of it uh, are hard to nail down with accuracy. So his divine activity, what God is doing, how he led humans to develop language and had more Moses born in that place and in that time, that's divine activity. He seems more evident when you step back and get comfortable with the unknown. Now, Joseph says to his brothers, I know what you guys were about. You were about getting rid of me. You were about you know, possibly my death. But you need to understand that it was God who sent me here. There was divine activity in this. And I wonder how often in whatever we've experienced last week or whatever you're going to come to on this week, I get frustrated with the moment. I get frustrated with the thing that's in front of me. And when you do this week, when you have that moment, when you just, it's something that doesn't seem solvable, something that doesn't seem fair. How many of you in some time in the recent history that you can remember have encountered something that was flat out unjust? Not right, not fair, this shouldn't be happening, right? And it's so easy to get caught in that moment, and I'm sure Joseph had those moments too, when he said, this, this is not right, this can't be considered fair. And yet he says to them, in hindsight, looking back, he says, it wasn't you who did this, it was God who did this. To accept my Bible as truly theanostos, the breath of God, it's going to require both the, reveal, the reveal, revelation of historical fact, we put some pieces together, and it's going to require some faith on my part for the gaps. Because some of the gaps don't get resolved. Some of the timeline is pretty hard to figure out. The same is true for you and I this week. Sometimes we can get the facts of the matter together and we can feel good about that, but sometimes there's going to be gaps for us and it doesn't get revealed. And we're left with questions that I wish God would answer. If we're going to believe our Bibles and we're going to try and answer this question, where did it come from, we'll rely on some of the facts and we're also going to have to trust where they're not going to be revealed. I hope you have that experience for you this week as well. Let me pray. Father, I can't be the only one in the room who at time has prayed to you, show me, explain to me, help me understand why is this happening, how does this happen, where did it come from, what's going on? In the same way that we ask the question, you know, how did, how did the Word of God get formed in such a way as we can hold it in our hands today, we're going to have to uh, get comfortable with the fact that some of the times we're not going to be able to find some of the answers. Some of it can't be reconciled and there's going to be gaps in which we just have to trust in rather than know. And the same principle is true for us. I know at times I've wanted you to answer certain things. I wanted you to answer the questions that I have. I wanted you to reveal something, explain to me. 
it cannot be a mistake that when Job did the same thing, you actually didn't answer it for him. You answered instead with questions like, do you know where I keep lightning? Do you know where I keep the storehouses of snow? Do you know how I control the tides and the oceans and the great monsters within them? Job, do you know any of these things? We want to know. We want to have answers to our immediate. We want to have answers to our tensions. We want to have answers to our questions. As we consider uh, wondering how our Bible came to be where it is, teach us, God, how to accept the unknown and help us to apply that in our, in our everyday life, everyday that we're uh, plugging through, accomplishing what we're accomplishing, struggling with what we're struggling, and feeling the injustice that we sometimes feel. Renew our faith, God, that we can be comfortable in the unknown and, and lead us there by the work and the, and the breath of Your Spirit. And we just thank You that uh, whatever that means, it has meant a cooperative effort between Yourself and us. And so we anticipate You'll show us in Your time. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite our worship team to come on back up and help us to respond in our one final song this morning, please.